Blog Talk Radio. Hello folks, it's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern pilot crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland, enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger-carrying aircraft, to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations. Finally, as flight attendants in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s. Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales, and reservation system, Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of Eastern. It's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending, sending the stories to us at eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D at yahoo.com. We'll record your story and read on the air. Better yet, why not record your story in your own voice and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the the copy of the recording send to the above address and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever. 
Now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week. This is a recent post on the Eastern Airlines Retiree Association's Facebook page. It was written by Jenny Lorraine, and it's addressed to Neil Holland. Thank you. I would love to be on the radio show. I grew up flying Eastern until I was 12 years old. My single mom worked in reservations. We did not have a lot of money, however. Those travel benefits made us feel like we did. We got to see and do so much. Whether it was a ride on, if you had wings, at Disney for the 10th time, or eating those giant pineapples in first class on the way to San Juan, it was magic. The pilots were always nice to us and sometimes would announce we would like to welcome aboard Jen, Jess, and Scott. The flight attendants would tell us what movie is playing in another part of the plane to see if we wanted to watch something different. Everyone was great to us. It was so exciting getting dressed up. I had my special airplane dress that I wore that would get us on the flights. I never even knew what coach was like until I was older. Where are the little salt and pepper shakers? Laugh out loud. To the family such as ours, single mom and three kids and no other assistance, this was where I fell in love with all the things travel-related. I love the airline industry. When I was in college, I, I got a job with Midway Airlines and did several years working in different positions. It was, a, it was great, but truly nothing could compare to the overall amazing family of Eastern Airlines. I've been out of the business now for about 20 years, and don't you know, I am itching to go back. It never does leave your bloodstream, does it? Your radio show and podcast brings back all of those great feelings and experiences I had as a kid. Thank you to all of thanks to all of you for keeping the Eastern Airlines spirit alive. For all those memories, keeping us safe on your planes and for the kindness you showed us once upon a long time ago. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. A story by flight attendant Alexa Conway. It's titled, My Younger Brother, and it was in the wings of many. My younger brother was in a plane crash. He flew for Western Airlines out of California. I lived in Orlando when I got the call. Because of my airline connections, I was able to get someone high up in Eastern to call Western for status. I was packing to leave for Mexico City where the accident happened. About 20 minutes later, my friend called me back. 
He was so hesitant. He finally said, Alexa, your brother is reportedly one of the casualties. I'm so sorry. He then added that he hoped the information was incorrect. I should keep a positive outlook. Impossible. I called a good flight attendant friend of mine, fluent in Spanish, and asked her to go to Mexico City with me. She agreed, and I said I would meet her in Atlanta. She lived in Tampa and commuted to Miami. I left. When I arrived in Atlanta, she was at the gate waiting for me. We started to our next gate, and she asked me if I had my passport. Thank God for her. That had not crossed my mind. I did not even have my crew ICAO card, which gave us access through borders when in uniform. We raced out to the ticket counter. A wonderful agent listened to the story, made some phone calls, and issued me a temporary visa of some sort. Thank goodness. I had become a clueless passenger, but my airline took care of me. We went to our gate nonstop flight to Mexico City. Just as we were boarding, a woman came running up to us, asked if one of us was Alexa. I said, yes. And she said, your brother is alive. I was stunned. I had no idea what to say. I was also leery. I said, prove it. She got on the phone to someone, and in a minute, while Eastern held the flight, she handed me the phone. A man identified himself as my brother's doctor. He said, your brother said, yes, my sister flies for Eastern Airlines. Tell her to get her butt over here. Then I knew he was alive. This was a miracle. I got onto the plane, into my seat, and we pushed away from the gate. My friend was sitting across the aisle from me. I did well until we landed in New Mexico City. I could see debris. I saw large sections of the western DC-10. Then I saw a dog across from the airport on a sidewalk in front of a house. He was charcoal from the heat of the plane crash. I broke into tears. The tears I had postponed began. I could not stop crying. We got off the flight, hailed a cab, and asked to go to the hospital. We were carrying our luggage. When we arrived, I found my brother. He was sharing a room with one of the passengers who had survived. He was badly hurt and had many broken places, but he was alive, and we were both thrilled to see each other. The hospital staff was wonderful. They felt so happy to have anyone alive from such a horrible accident. A testament to how much painkiller he had in his system was him chiding me for not having on a bra. I was 24 years old. Had I been anyone but his sister, he would have had, he would have loved the look. It has been a family joke ever since. One afternoon, while I'm waiting in the hallway outside of my brother's room, three women approach me. They were eastern flight attendants who heard of the accident, learned a survivor had an eastern employee in his family, and they flew to Mexico City to give me support. I had never known them. They had never known me, yet here they were. They had somehow decided to do this for me, 
had used their airline passes on their days off and flown to be supportive. That was Eastern Airlines. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. The good old days. Were the good old days always so good? Did you ever fly on a DC-3? Do you know how they kept the passengers warm on a DC-3? Is with steam heat. Here's an article from the best of repartee describing that system. One would have to brush away the cobwebs of his mind to recall that period in the 1940s when our DC-3's interiors were heated with steam. Joe Vance, who was well known along the Atlanta-Chicago route, recalls vividly the involved operation provided the heat in those early planes. Anytime an airplane landed in cold weather, the boiler, located in the exhaust stack of the right engine, had to be drained to prevent freezing. There was a water tank and a pressure tank between the cabin and the cockpit door on the right side of the baggage compartment between the two compartments. A spare gallon can of water was strapped to the floor be below the reservoir. The water was not dropped to the boiler until you became airborne because the water line to the boiler was most susceptible to freezing. There was a knob at the bottom of the co-pilot's instrument panel which controlled the nose valve providing the air source for ventilation. This was screwed closed until a full head of steam pressure appeared on the boiler gauge after the water was dropped. Then one had to be very careful to crack the nose valve so too much cold air would not cause steam pressure to be lost. The co-pilot would open the nose valve one turn while the captain watched the pressure gauge. If the pressure dropped, the nose valve had to be closed again. Once heat was established, the nose valve was opened fully and heated air went to the cabin. Bish Simpson remembers, just before you cranked up, the ground people would pour hot water in the boiler through a funnel and valve in the nacelle. Once for almost uh, for about two weeks, every flight between Louisville and Chicago had frozen boilers. Once it was so cold on Paul Charles's flight from Louisville to Atlanta that water which had spilled, filling the spare can, seeped down through the floor and froze the control cables. Paul had to fly the plane with the trim tabs, but they worked in reverse. After much shaking of the controls, they finally broke free. Bish later fixed the bleeder valve, which will allow the initial steam pressure to thaw the pipe on the boiler. Joe Vance remembers how he had to use the steam heat on the bitter cold morning of January the 15th, 1948. As he walked out the front door of the Stevens Hotel in Chicago, he felt the knife edge of the wind blowing down Michigan Avenue. While riding to Midway Airport in the Cadillac limousine, he could see the cold creeping up through the floor and into his legs. Midway resembled the steppes of Siberia in mid-morning. Airplanes were holding both northwest and southeast of the field. Up at the control tower, the operator was saying, Eastern, be ready to leave the Thornton intersection in five minutes. The snow plows are northwest bound. It had been snowing all night, and the six plows had been moving abreast up and down the runway the entire time. 
Each time they neared the opposite end of the runway, a plane was cleared to land. During the night, pilots had been using the Cicero Avenue approach, one of their many innovations. At this time, high-intensity runway lights were a thing of the future. The runway lights at Midway Airport were flush with the runway and actually dimmer than the lights of cars driving down Cicero Avenue. So after landing down to a minimum altitude, the pilot would look for Blue Island Tank, then the Cicero Avenue lights, follow them to the edge of the field, and line up with the dimmer runway lights. Before taking off from Midway on that bitter cold morning, Joe Vance and his co-pilot Dan Trask carefully went over the procedures providing heat. It was so cold the engine oil had been diluted with the gasoline. It was necessary to pour a cupful of gas down the air intake to the carburetor to start the engines. But in spite of all their precautions, after takeoff, the pressure dropped and the boiler froze and burst. All the ship's blankets were pressed into use. On the approach at Indianapolis, ice had formed on the inside of the cockpit windshield and had to remove with emergency glycerin. A routine landing was made, but the trip was canceled because the left engine would not start. Later, Eastern installed the gasoline-operated Genitrol heaters, but they were not without their problems because sometimes discarded flight papers accidentally flew out of the window and stopped up the heater air intake, causing the heaters not to operate. Uh, I think I'll skip that ride on the next DC-3. of aviation history. Have you ever thought about how Charles Lindbergh learned to fly, where he learned to fly, what type of aircraft? Well here's a story from the best of a repartee entitled The Pilot Who Soloed Lindbergh. We're going to get an answer to all of those questions. World War I had finally come to an end. Everyone fortunate enough to survive was back and the government was busy disposing of its surplus of equipment left over from the war. In the summer of 1924, at Field in America's Georgia, Archie Comer was assembling brand-new flying jennies, which had never been removed from their crates. These were planes which would have been used for training of the World War I pilots. They were sale to, for sale to prospective purchasers after the planes had first been tested and the buyer had demonstrated his ability to handle it in the air. Late one afternoon, a young man appeared in a Boy Scout uniform, looking about for a cheap plane in which to test his doubtful prowess as an aviator. He told Archie that he had been flying for some time, that he was looking for a plane in which to take his test for a pilot's license. 
Archie advised him that he could furnish the plane easily enough, but that he would have to put up a $500 deposit before they could let him fly it. The young man didn't seem to fancy the idea of risking his money on the flight, so he looked over the supply of planes, picked one out, and asked how much it would cost to buy it outright. The purchase price tallied exactly with the amount necessary for a deposit. The young man reached in his pocket, pulled out $500, and announced it sold. For several days, Archie Comer and his unknown pupil taxied back and forth across the field, hopped off into the clouds, and glided safely back again to the hangar. Little was said between them, for both were extremely modest and reticent individuals. After two or three tests, Archie told him he could try a solo flight over the field. He did so, believing that he was telling the truth about his former experience. It was not until long afterwards that Archie learned that he had never flown alone and that his knowledge of aviation consisted almost entirely of groundwork, which he had received at Robinson Field in St. Louis. The young man showed no particular relation of the fact that he had won permission to solo. He told Archie it had become too late in the afternoon and he preferred to wait until the following day. At 7 o'clock the next morning, Archie arrived at the field only to discover that the young man had been up for more than an hour, and that instead of circling the field and landing, he had departed Americas never to return. The young man in the Boy Scout uniform was Charles Lindbergh. Archie Comer had soloed the Lone Eagle. Archie Comer, a native of Athens, Georgia, began flying when he was just 15. He was first with the Army Air Corps and later became a commercial mechanic in America's Georgia with the Sand W. Airplane Company. He ferried planes to buyers in other parts of the country. Once, on a trip to Michigan, Archie found the buyer to be out of town for a week. When he finally ran out of funds, he took his last 25 cents and purchased a loaf of bread and a bottle of syrup. He made a syrup sandwich by scooping out the inside of the bread and pouring in the syrup. By the time he got hungry again, Western Union had sent money for him. Archie continued his aviation career with Pitcairn Aviation as a mechanic during the week and airmail pilot on weekends. Eastern Air Transport had lost its most eligible bachelor when Archie Comer saw a picture in the rotor section of the Sunday paper of a comely young lady dressed in a snappy hunting outfit, resting between shots in the quail field holding on a leash three fine English setters. They later, made, later met at a restaurant in Hateful, Georgia and were married in Miami with Fred and Billy Kahn as attendants. Archie Comer was a man of considerable skill, which encompassed much more than flying. He was a crack shot and won the Florida 20-gauge skeet championship for three straight years. He was an avid tennis player and taught his wife Sarah to be a champion. She continued for 48 years. He constructed four tennis courts and three barns. As a pilot, Archie Comer was top of the line. My grandson would characterize him as cool, and it was with a cool head that Archie Comer reacted to the situation which took place over Nashville, Tennessee, in a Lockheed Electra. The stewardess came forward to the cockpit and advised Archie that the floor in the aisle was caving in. Immediately, the electrical buses began to transfer back and forth, and all electrical power was lost. This was a catastrophe of major proportion because nearly everything in the Electra was operated by electricity. What happened was a large copper strap had become loose from one of the main electrical buses 
and fallen down across two other main buses creating an arc and shorting out the whole electrical system. The heat generated by the arc had melted the floor above the electrical service center on the airplane. The weather was not good and Archie Comer had to land the plane without instruments, which he did in record time, averting a fire. It was probably one of the finest pieces of flying ever done in the history of aviation and so recognized by all of us who are familiar with the Electra. There are many things that are unique about Eastern Airlines. The basic instrument grouping on the aircraft instrument panel came about as a result of input from the pilots. Check pilots were chosen for their ability and experience. They went back periodically to fly the line so as not to lose touch. Archie Comer was a check pilot in Atlanta and he was an inspiration for all of us who were privileged to fly with him. It would have been unthinkable to give Archie anything less than your finest effort no matter if you were being line checked or serving as his co-pilot. Probably most of us who came to Eastern Airlines from the military after World War II appreciated him the most because we were his co-pilots and spent the most time with him. He was a champion in every single thing he did. He was the pilot that soloed Lindbergh. Ryan, look! There's new kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727 jet! Look how high the tail is! 34 feet! Look where they put the jets! In the tail assembly! That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston and a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with bordelaise sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. This story comes to us from The Wings of Man. The article is the Miami-London Route by Captain Don Witt, Eastern's DC-10 service to London Gatwick. The Miami to London Air Route first became available to Eastern Airlines in 1979 when National and Pan Am, which both served it, merged. This left an opening for a new second U.S. carrier to fly to London. Eastern jumped in with both feet, stating that they would be ready to go with leased equipment within 72 hours of government approval. The British then threw a monkey wrench in the machinery when advising that the above-mentioned flying, which had previously served overcrowded Heathrow, would from then on fly into Gatwick. This airport was further from downtown London. Someone in the top echelon of Eastern was not satisfied with this change, so the route request was withdrawn. Our head, high headquarters at Eastern shot from the hip and completely missed a targeted route. Did our front office really believe the British would change their mind and let us fly into Heathrow? It was not to be. We desperately needed the revenue and this route was a money maker. Standing in the wings was Air Florida, which offered to serve the route and launch service in April 1981. Air Florida was another shooting star of the deregulation myth and burned out in a hurry. Growing too big too fast, the airline ceased operation in July 1984 and declared bankruptcy. 
There was a line at the door of the Civil Aeronautics Board in fall 1984. Along with Eastern, five other airlines were seeking the Miami to London route. Airline officers and their attorneys met with CAB, each presenting their proposals for serving the, serving the route. An important event took place during the hearings for the case. The CAB was dissolved into history at midnight on December the 31st, 1984. The Department of Transportation assumed many of the duties of the abrogated CAB and the DOT people were slowly working their way into unfamiliar waters. In January 1985, a judge recommended that World Airways should be awarded the route because of its proposed low fares. Jumping up and down with vocal frustration, the Eastern delegation filed a petition in February showing that they had one proposed fare that was even less than any of World's. Eastern also pointed out that its Miami hub provided connections to both North and South America, plus the Caribbean. Unquestionably, it was proved that no other airline could even match or excel Eastern's offer or service. During the eight months of federal government deliberations, it was a roller coaster ride for emotions for Eastern people. Extreme optimism would be followed by crashing disappointment as representatives from each airline presented their arguments for being awarded the route. Arguments followed by counter-arguments sometimes muddied the water so badly that occasionally it seemed that only the lawyers had some idea of what was going on. After much deliberation and great exhaustion, the DOT finally awarded the Miami to London route to Eastern and on July 15, 1985, we began flying six flights a week to Gatwick. Much color and pomp was displayed at all cities that Eastern served in the Americas, both celebrating and advertising that European services it now had to offer the flying public. Eastern salespeople had not been asleep. Before the inauguration, both British and American sales teams saturated the British Isles with a sales blitz. Representatives also circulated throughout mainland Europe, touting the fantastic destinations to which Eastern flew. After visiting Florida, passengers could fly to the romance of the colorful Caribbean islands or the swinging, swinging musical South American countries. Eastern airplanes could even take them to visit the wide open spaces of the rugged American West. It would take numerous visits for the European travelers to see all we had to offer, but we could comfortably and conveniently fly them to these many destinations. They did a firm, fun-filled public relations job. $21 to London. The Lockheed L-1011 was first planned for the London route, but instead Eastern selected the McDonnell Douglas DC-1030, whose fuel range permitted reaching more distant cities in both Europe and South America. We leased these DC-10s and our maintenance people meticulously converted them inside and out to our desired configuration, working in less than two months with each. Twelve new first-class sleeper seats and 34 executive seats were installed in the forward cabin. The rear cabin used existing coach seats with sparkling new covers. There was new galley carpeting and everything else was replaced with eastern materials and equipment. With a fresh paint job, the inside and out shimmered with eastern pride. New avionics were installed to our code. It was a pleasure for the entire flight crew to work in either the cockpit or cabin. Even a catalytic converter was installed to remove ozone concentrations. Eastern wanted the passengers to have a good visual experience with the airplane along with the excellent service that they would want to fly with us again and again and long remember the experience. 
Miami salespeople provided the king, queen, and page in authentic costumes along with a properly painted double-decker bus to inform the people and travel industry of Eastern's new service. The bus made many heads turn as it drove around Miami. Similar proclamations were made by our people in both the U.S. and Europe advertising our service. A great pass program was provided for Eastern employees flying between Miami and London. How about $70 one-way first class, $40 one-way executive class, and $21 for Y class? Our employees responded with packed suitcases. No other airline offered employees such great vacation trips. Eastern people enjoyed working with a challenge. If anyone said it couldn't be done, our folks just multiplied their efforts. The public relations work for the London flights proved a success as load factor steadily grew, making it a moneymaker. The year 1985 saw favorable system-wide load factors and cash flow, but a silent, sinister something hovered, hovered over the airline. Eastern had problems, but employees hoped that a solution could be found. The rank and file had also given back financially, hoping that it would help the airline survive. But in February 1986, it was announced that Eastern Airlines had been sold to Texas Air. Our airline's back had been broken. Texas Air planned to ground Eastern airplanes and crews flying the London trip and have its non-union continental people fly it instead. Eastern people protested the switch so loudly that Texas Air first contracted the flying to British Caledonian until a later date when Continental crews and airplanes assumed the flying. Our short time of flying over in the Atlantic sun was over. The Eastern rank and file had given their over 100% effort to make the London run successful, but management had other plans. It was a heartbreaker. We were fortunate to have flown during the good times, enjoying it, and looking forward to going to work. We will forever retain happy memories and remember the good friends we shared when we were number one to the sun. And here's a note about the author of this article. Captain Don Witt started flying at the age of 15 and is still flying and riding at the age of 84. With a total of 28,000 flight hours and 21 years with Eastern, Don is an aviation historian and also writes about Arizona historical subjects and frequently contributes to keeping in touch for the EARA. He also flew for the U.S. Air Force, Pan Am, and Lake Central Airlines. days of Eastern Airlines, of course, was originally Pitcairn Aviation and sold, and the name changed to Eastern Air Transport. 
And the publication for Eastern Air Transport was a newsletter titled Newswing. In the February of 1932, uh, the following article was posted, and it's called Airway Organization. Eastern Air Transport operates over a civil airway system 2,876 miles long. This airway was established by the U.S. Department of Commerce, and all of it, except two connecting short lines, is lighted for night flying. Over its entire length, there is an airport or landing field every 30 miles, so that planes are never more than seven minutes of flight from an established field. The trunk route between New York and Atlanta is equipped with radio range beacons, airway beacons, an Eastern Air Transport type teletypewriter system, and a Department of Commerce teletypewriter system, the latter for weather reporting. All routes have thorough weather reporting systems. A private radio network is maintained by Eastern Air Transport. Now, in that same newsletter, February 1932, uh, it talks about the passengers uh, being able to see uh, from outside the windows of the usually the Curtis Condor airliners uh, that were flying the East Coast. An article appeared that reads, Points of Interest Seen in Flight. Some places of unusual interest which can be seen from the windows of Eastern Air Transport's airliners while in flight are over New Jersey, Lindbergh's Farm, Princeton University, the spot where Washington crossed the Delaware, then Pennsylvania, Independence Hall, statue of William Penn above City Hall, the U.S. Navy Yard, Hog Island Shipyard. Over Delaware, the Mason-Dixon Line. Over Maryland, Old Fort Carroll, erected in river, in river and on approximate spot where the Star-Spangled Banner was written. The District of Columbia, the Capitol, the White House, other public buildings, Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, War and Navy Building, Treasury Building, Arlington National Cemetery, Navy Radio Station NAA, the Navy Yard. Then Virginia, Washington's homestead at Mount Vernon, many battlegrounds, the Quantico Marine Base, up over North Carolina, the tobacco factories, Kings Mountain, South Carolina, King Cotton, Georgia, Stone Mountain, the Golden Isles, and then finally, finally Florida, the tropics in midwinter. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Well, that's all we have for tonight. Harry and I hope you have enjoyed this little bit of Eastern history. 
Much has been written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines and by others in books, newspapers, magazines, and newsletters of the several Eastern Organization publications. They're doing their part in keeping the legacy of a great airline alive and well, even after the more than 30 years since its last flight. Why not add your memories to our Monday night broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline as told by its people and friends? Just send us your story and we'll read it on a future broadcast. Better yet, record it and send to e neil holland at yahoo.com that's e neil n-e-a-l holland at yahoo.com it must be in a wake file or correction wave file format or an mp3 format your recording recording will be part of the show in your own voice now until next monday at 8 p.m eastern time harry lindquist and neil holland Hope you have a safe and beneficial week. So long, Eastern family.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.